Mark Brumley, president of Ignatius Press, joins Bishop Caggiano today on Let Me Be Frank. Mark has had a fascinating journey of faith, and he'll talk with His Excellency about publishing and evangelization and a lot more. So stay right here on 1350 AM or 103.9 FM or on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. The app is available at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at veritascatholic.com. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Pastors and ministry leaders in the Diocese of Bridgeport are invited to apply for program support grants with the St. John Paul II Fund for Religious Education and Faith Formation. With a focus on youth engagement and innovative approaches, the JP2 Fund has funded diverse programs, typically running from September to June. So pastors and ministry leaders here in the Diocese of Bridgeport can apply for up to $10,000 in support of religious education and faith formation programs. The application window closes this Friday, March 31st. So to apply, go online to foundationsinfaith.org. All right, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Good day, my friend, Steve. We Excellency. are we're approaching Holy Week. It's kind of scary, huh? Boy, it's right around the corner. Yeah, not that Holy Week is itself scary, <laughs> but the passage of time is scary. <laughs> yes, my unpreparedness is sometimes scary. Yeah, <laughs> my gosh, it was just... Um, but this has been, so what do you think? What uh, Lent has been a good time? Good time for you? Uh, yes. Yes, it has. Yeah, me too. Yep. Yeah, me too. In a, this is the first Lent in a, in a while where um, I've, I've been able to hold on to a sense of tranquility that oftentimes gets lost in the Lenten, Easter rush of thousand things going on. This year is different for some reason. And I'm very huh. grateful. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very grateful. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, as so as we round into Holy Week, um uh we've got so we've had a, a couple really cool guests on uh during this Lent. And um and today is is right in line with that. We've got a guest who is um I'm really excited to hear your conversation with him. Um we're we're happy to have Mark Brumley on. Mark is the president of Ignatius Press, which is a leading Catholic publishing company here uh, in the U.S. Um, he Mark is an author, speaker, and teacher. He formerly was director of the offices of social ministries and for communications for the Diocese of San Diego. He now lives in Napa, California. Mark has also served on many Catholic boards, including the Colby Academy. Uh, University of St. Thomas's Presidential Advisory Board, the Augustine Institute, the Napa Institute, and the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology. What a mouthful. <laughs> but Mark Brumley, thank you so much for joining us here on Let Me Be Frank. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Boy, that was exhausting just hearing My God, exhausting more to do it. Lord. <laughs> right. Now, now we have to, Mark, we have to uh, um, give the disclaimer a bit. Okay. okay, because Mark and I worked together through the subcommittee on the catechism, right? right? So we've known each other for a while. Gosh, maybe since I've been in this, this I can't even count that high how many years I've been on this yeah. subcommittee. But and um, and we're working together just after the just after the church was yeah yeah it was like it was right? the second day after the after Pentecost when they're saying okay what do we do now 
Exactly. It took the nineteen hundred years to write it, but we got it. <laughs> but anyway, so um, so Mark, I'm delighted that you're that you're with us now. So I'm excited to learn about your background because in our work mm. we really haven't gotten into that sort of discussion. And I hear that you are a convert on multiple levels. Is this true? Yes, I sometimes say I. I used to be a nun uh, many, many years ago. Um, of course, it was N-O-N-E, not N-U-N. Got to clarify those things mm -hmm. nowadays, um, which means I was uh, unchurched, you know, what we call mm -hmm. unchurched. And I had a conversion experience to evangelical Christianity as a young man and then later became uh, Catholic, came into full community of the Catholic Church. So, so tell us, if you don't mind, if you're comfortable, some of the of the story behind this. What, what, what provoked the conversion from no affiliation to evangelical Christianity? What was that like, that experience? And then what moved you to explore, you know, entrance into the Catholic Church? I'm curious. Good question. You know, um, there is now a movie out called The Jesus Revolution, which is about the Jesus movement uh, in California uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. And that Jesus movement, the, the film itself is focused on Calvary Chapel and Chuck Smith and what later uh, uh, becomes Harvest uh, Christian Fellowship and so, so on in Southern California. But the Jesus movement was a, was a big thing in Southern California, went well beyond Calvary Chapel. And it eventually, um, moved to the Midwest, and I was sort of, uh, my conversion experience came as a result of, you know, an outreach to young people, uh, both young people in established churches and uh, the unaffiliated, and I was unaffiliated. I, I refer to myself as a South St. Louis unaffiliated theist, because that was my family background. My parents, their parents had been Catholics. They were nothing. Uh, you know, they believed in God, but but that was it. And it was just, you know, a, a fairly secular kind of life, which has unfortunately become all too common today. Mm -hmm. Back then, growing up in South St. Louis, Missouri, even though I was a secular person, you know, there were Christians all around. And, you know, we knew, uh, we, we told people, you know, uh, we knew people who they were by where they lived in terms of Catholic parishes, even though I wasn't Catholic. So that's how, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> entrenched. The Catholic culture was in, in St. Louis. Um, and so that's the environment I grew up in. And, uh, you know, it was through kind of a, a series of things. I came, I had um, a, uh, an older, three older sisters who were school teachers, had been school teachers. They were retired. They lived up the street from me and uh, they would see me in the neighborhood and call me over. And one of them had, one of them was a former nun. Mm -hmm. Uh, and one of them was a, a former missionary, a, a Protestant missionary. And she gave me a little pocket New Testament, and I read that. And uh, it had a huge effect on me. I remember going, I, my parents, of course, didn't know what to make of this. Uh, I was going to the library once with my mom, and um, we didn't have a Bible in our home. So I wanted to check out a Bible because I had this New Testament, and I wanted to read the whole thing, right? Not just the 
the cliff notes. <laughs> so um, I've never quite heard that. So, That's great. <laughs> yeah. So so I I went to check out a Bible at the at the library. Of course, it was a reference book, and I I couldn't check that out without you know my mother's approval because you had to be eighteen or whatever, and um, and so she was completely and utterly embarrassed, you know, because the tacit admission of allowing her kid to check out a Bible is that they have a Bible in the home. But that tells you something, because even though she was unchurched, she knew there was something mm-hmm. you know, not right about not having a Bible in your home. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the environment. But it was really through the Jesus movement and reaching out to young people and uh, that I had my, you know, I accepted Jesus as my personal savior and became, a, you know, a, you know, on fire, born again Christian when I was in high school. I was pretty militantly anti-Catholic. By the way, oh, I was wondering about um, that. Really? So, what do you yeah, think? What do you yeah. think we were? Kind of like idol- idolaters um, or something? I, w- I was, um, you know, I had some friends that were pretty extreme, but I thought of myself as pretty balanced. You could say I was sort of somewhat ecumenical. My friends thought uh, the Pope was the Antichrist and the Catholic Church was the whore of Babylon. But I, in my ecumenical zeal, thought that the Catholic Church or that the Pope was really only the uh, false prophet of the book of Revelation, the precursor to the Antichrist. Oh, oh. So, I, oh, so I wasn't, it wasn't as bad. It was just like a gradation less. Oh, that was progress. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but but I was so anti, anti-establishment, as a lot of young people were at that time, that I, I wasn't singling out Catholicism. Uh, I also thought mainline Protestantism was, you know, part of mm-hmm. that whole corrupt Christianity mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And it was really through um, C.S. Lewis, reading C.S. Lewis, that I shifted to a more, um, for lack of a better term, inclusive kind of evangelicalism. Now, all this is going on. I'm, I'm witnessing to people, and we're going out to storefront churches and you know doing all this crazy stuff. Not really crazy, but uh, with young people. And I am not, at that point, baptized. Interesting. Yeah. Not baptized. Now you say, why wouldn't you be baptized, mm-hmm. right? Because you're born again Christian, all that. And the answer is, I didn't trust institutional churches, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to be baptized by a, you know, the Baptist or the Lutherans. We had a lot of Lutherans, Missouri Synod Lutherans in Missouri in St. Louis. Certainly not the Catholics. That was unthinkable. Um, I wanted to find the the church that was the right church and have a minister of that church baptize me. So it took me a while. And it was it was a weird process because I went from a pretty staunch, you know, evangelical, anti-Catholic type of personality to becoming more ecumenical. And I, I decided that the, the, the one true church was the United Methodist Church. Hmm. That, that generates an interesting reaction. Yeah, in well, you, yeah, I, I would I'm, love to know how you reason to that. <laughs> well, because I, I had a, there was a pastor, younger guy at that time, uh, who had a storefront mission and he had been a Methodist, he was a Methodist pastor. Mm-hmm. The, the, the evangelicals were taking people out of his congregation. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted to respond to that. So what did he do? He started a storefront outreach to young people mm-hmm. so that they would gather there and he would keep them in, you know, keep him associated with the church. So I was very impressed by that. And so I started reading about John Wesley, who's the founder of Methodism. 
And so I thought, oh, that that's got to be it. Because at this time, I'm you should know I'm doing apologetics while I evangelize. So I, I you know I'm trying to make the biblical case for Jesus Christ. To do that, you have to show the historical credibility of the Gospels. To do that, you have to trace the historical pedigree of the Gospels, which takes you to the you know the second and third centuries, early Christian writers who are actually Catholic bishops. <laughs> Um, but I wouldn't, I didn't think of them as Catholic bishops. I knew they were bishops. Mm -hmm. So I realized, okay, the, the early church, the church after the apostles, it's governed by bishops. So any church that's the church of Jesus Christ must be governed by bishops. Well, it can't be the Catholic church and it can't be the Orthodox church and the Episcopal church was a mess in my view. So it can't be that. Well, what's left standing <laughs> in America, you know, some guy, some kid in South St. Louis, Missouri, it's the Methodist church. So I wound up being baptized at a Methodist church. How old, Mark? How old were um, you? I was 17 years old. Wow. Wow. And I, I was baptized in this church. But I didn't realize that Methodism was going through some of the, this was the 70s, right? So I didn't realize that all the churches really kind of struggling. And the Methodist Church, United Methodist Church, was going through some of the same problems. The pastor, who was a good man, he one Sunday preached a sermon on Matthew 16, 18, and 19, right? You are Peter mm -hmm. upon this. You are Peter upon this rock. I built my church and the gates of hell not prevail against it, and so on. Um, which... You know, he starts out by saying, with all due respect to our friends in Rome, because he's an ecumenical, you know, United Methodist pastor, I do not do not believe this passage refers to the papacy. Hey, that was fine with me. I didn't think it did either. But then he went on to say, you notice that Jesus says to Peter, I give you the keys to the kingdom mm -hmm. of heaven. Keys implies more than one door. More than one door implies more than one way. And you've probably seen these popular bumper stickers with the finger pointing up to heaven saying one way, well, I want to tell you there are many ways to God. Jesus isn't the only way. Well, of course, to my evangelical sensibilities, alarm bells went off and I stopped going to that church. And you know what? A bunch of other young people did too, because while it's true, and we would say from a Catholic perspective, obviously, um, Jesus is an inclusive Jesus. Nevertheless, there's one name under Amen. which... Uh, we are saved, Jesus Christ, Amen. right? And so um, th that, sh so so I started looking again. But I'd been baptized, and I began looking again, and I I, I started reconsidering the Catholic Church. I remember, as I said, I was a big fan of C.S. Lewis. Um, my one of my best friends growing up had been a, he was a Catholic, was going to Catholic high school. He and I would have theological arguments. He was not well formed mm -hmm. in the faith. I remember sitting on my living room couch with him saying, you know, explain it to me. You Catholics say Mary's the mother of God. If that's true, that would make her older than mm -hmm, God. Mm -hmm. And so he said, I know that's wrong, but I can't tell you why. Mm -hmm. And so we would go back and forth. And I, and he was kind of institutionally committed to the church, Catholic church, couldn't explain anything. And I would say, well, if the Catholic church is so great, Where's the Catholic C.S. Lewis? And I was, of course, completely ignorant. <laughs> no knowledge of Catholic theological tradition, which is such an absurd question. But, you know, to this 17, 18-year-old guy, that seemed like a powerful argument. 
he went oh, walked over to a bookshelf in this we were at his in his father's den he walked over to a bookshelf pulled it off a book and handed it to me and it was frank sheed's book theology and sanity mm-hmm. and he said i don't uh, i haven't read this book my dad is always trying to get me to read it but i think it's the kind of book that you're looking for and i read that book and it transformed my life wow um and so then i i you know, so I've already gone run long on this, so I'll just truncate the Catholic conversion. You know, reading and talking to other Catholic people, I came to see that a New Testament Christianity does exist today. It, it exists in the Catholic Church in its full its full manifestation. What an uh, odyssey so. from where you began to there! Isn't that amazing? And it's yeah. the work of the Holy Spirit yeah. too. Right. Absolutely. I'm going to sh- I'm, I, I'm I, going to share I, Mark just as just as this before I forget. I'm going to share a profound theological observation. <clears throat> okay. Being a Brooklyn theologian, there are more than one key because every door has more than one lock. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's right. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I later on, uh, uh, one of my friends pointed that out. <laughs> I said, well, you'll have to talk to the, you know, Pastor Adams is the guy that came up with the image, not me. So, so you did not know that C.S. Lewis was Catholic. Well, he's, he, he was an Anglican, yeah. but I, I did not realize I did not realize um, how Catholic exactly. he was. Right. I, I had no I had no context for that. Um, yeah, so I did not. So know then that, you right? converted into the church, second conversion, yeah. and now you have yeah. dedicated your life to exploring the the depth and breadth and the beauty of of Catholic doctrine and Catholic teaching. I mean. You're the president of Ignatius Press, my goodness, which is, you know, one of the great catechetical uh, uh, publishers. So t- tell us about that. So how did you get more deep and deep and deep and deep into the theological tradition of the church that became kind of like your career and your life? Well, I, yeah, as I, much of my conversion was very intellectual because I had, first of all, people don't know this, but St. Louis, Missouri is a very theological town. At least it was. I don't I've been gone there for a while, so I don't know what the current state of affairs is. But it used to be called the Rome of the West mm-hmm, and all mm-hmm. of that. It was a very Catholic presence. There's the Missouri Synod Lutherans are there as well. Uh, uh, Covenant Theological Seminary, which was at one point Reformed Church in America. Eden Theological Seminary there. Uh, you know, it's United Church of Christ, I think. And I had a lot of friends uh, who were uh, studying theology. At the, at the college level, or I had a number of friends who were seminarians at Concordia Seminary. So as I'm exploring this and I'm coming into communion with the Catholic Church, I'm still arguing with them about these kinds of questions, right? These are, these are live questions for us. Um, and so I persisted in my, int- my intellectual interest in the faith, uh, and I was very influenced by a guy named Louis Bouillet, uh, who was a, a great theologian of the 20th century, himself a convert from French Lutheranism. Um, and I just realized, you know, it was a, it was an odd experience because this was the late 70s and early 80s. So John Paul II was Pope. There was a new dynamism in the Catholic Church. Um, uh, coming out of the Second Vatican Council, there was a lot of confusion. I remember the experience of trying to find a Catholic priest this is 1979, trying to find a Catholic priest who could explain to me 
the doctrine of justification because it's obviously an issue for Protestants. And I'm eager to become Catholic. And I got about, I asked three priests and I got about five different <laughs> answers, right? Um, and so that's a little bit of the post-Vatican II kind of confusion period. Well, John Paul II comes on the scene and there is a re, there's a renewed um, appropriation uh, of, of the Catholic tradition, Catholic faith, in light of the council, not at odds with the council. That's one of the problems we have today. That there's a pitting of the council with what came before, uh, but in light of the council. And so I, I just, uh, you know, got into contact with lots of uh, Catholic young people. There was a movement called the Young Catholic Forum uh, that was going. It was in, started nationwide. I got involved with that. Um, and I wound up a Catholic school teacher in South St. Louis, wow. Missouri, teaching. So that was, that was great because I, I myself was growing in the mm -hmm. faith. This was before the catechism, mm -hmm. right? I was a Catholic school teacher in 1985. Mm -hmm. There was no catechism of the Catholic church. Uh, you know, so, so you had to, you know, what does the church teach today? Well, some people were saying, well, things like purgatory, oh, we don't believe in that anymore. You know, um, uh, the assumption of uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary, eh, that's kind of out of date. Rosary, we don't do that stuff anymore. And I knew other people that said, no, this, you know, the, the Vatican II didn't do away with purgatory. Vatican II didn't do away with the assumption of Our Lady. Vatican II didn't do anything away with the with a rosary or things of that sort. So I was in this environment that was a lot of uh, ambiguity and a lack of clarity. And I said, this is this cannot continue. So one of the reasons I wanted to be a Catholic school teacher was to help evangelize and catechize young people who did not know the faith. First of all, didn't know, it wasn't just a matter of not knowing the faith. They didn't really know Jesus. They didn't really know God. Mm -hmm. They didn't, and then even those who did have some kind of relationship uh, with God, it was a very nebulous kind of thing. And so I thought, you know, why not try to help? And that's why I became a Catholic school. It certainly wasn't for the money. No, it never is. Oh my gosh, no, no. And I married a Catholic school teacher too. We were both oh, teaching. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So that was a guaranteed path to poverty. So when, on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about the general world, catechesis and all the rest, because that's your world and evangelization and the challenges and all the rest. But I am curious, from your evangelical background, coming into the church, how did you assess, if you could recall, and how has it changed over the years, the, the church, the Catholic church's appreciation use in prayer over the sacred scripture did you find mm -hmm. that i'd did, say did you there find was, it was adequate did you what, what was your sense no i didn't find it was adequate i found that there were first of all there were obviously very holy people and it wasn't as if there was no holiness or no love of scripture no love of jesus or anything of that in the church but it was very um it there was a kind of very formal way that was expressed and then there was a whole lot of just ambiguity and uncertainty and like, you know, you didn't know what was being, I mean, I could just be honest. I don't want to pick on, on priests here, but I, you'd go to a mass and you hear homilies and you're like, I have no idea what that means. And uh -huh. that means mm -hmm. for my life, mm -hmm. you know, how does that relate to what, mm -hmm. you know, following the Lord or anything like that? So that was kind of how I encountered it. Now there were things that had a, had a very, I'm going to say very biblical feel a very evangelical, not with a capital E, uh, 
element and, and things that John Paul II was doing. I mean, I love John Paul mm-hmm. II. Um, uh, you could tell he loved the Lord and he was trying to communicate the gospel. He was, he was evangelizing. And just then, you know, I became aware of evangelization efforts in the, in the Catholic Church, but it was all very, very, um, it was not something you typically encountered in your ordinary parish on a given right. Sunday. You had to kind of look for it, hunt for it to find mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. At least that's how I experienced it. And I was, uh, after my, con- you know, after I came in the full community of the Catholic Church, I was very well connected with what's going on with young people and, and the parishes in the archdiocese of, of St. Louis at the time. And there were some good things, but there were, it just wasn't, it was not typical. It wasn't something you typically, you had to look for it. So that was my experience. So then. from 1985, when you began as a high school, Catholic high school teacher. I was teaching grade, oh, grade school, school at that point. Okay. And now yeah. 2023 is almost what? 10, it's like 30 some odd years. Right. Uh, my yes. strong student is not math, but I know it's somewhere in the high 30s. So that being the case, is it fair to say that you have really been teaching all along, just in different ways, different formats, yes. right? Yes, absolutely. Right. So, yeah. so how has that changed? Kids, how has that changed over the years? Well, the Catechism of the Catholic Church was a godsend because that that became an evangelical point of clarity. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, basic Catholic doctrines were not contested it's it's there mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so we don't have to focus on that in the sense of like well does the church still teach that we just have to proclaim the gospel and teach it and live it so that was a a huge turning point and as you know because i was at you heard my comments at the uh, at the institute session um there was a lot of resistance to the catechism for probably the first 10 years or around that amount of time Things have radically changed today. I'm not saying there's no room for improvement when it comes to evangelization catechesis, but we're in a different world. Um, I can go to my parish, and I know that the catechists there are formed in the in the, in the catechism and formed in the faith. I'm not saying that's the case everywhere. There still are still we still have a lot of needs in that regard, but it's not a no, it's not an anomaly. It's not like right. people are just like, what are you right. talking about? Right. Uh, and so, and I think that the U.S. bishops deserve a huge amount of credit. Uh, you guys have done a great job of using the catechism in the way I think John Paul II intended it to be used. And you, you're you're saying, yeah, this is the basis of our catechesis. This is the touchstone. We can adapt it and apply it and all of that. But this is our touchstone, and that's that's just had a humongous positive influence on the way we talk and act when it comes to evangelization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I would agree. I would agree. Okay. So uh, we, I can't wait for the second half of this conversation about evangelization and catechesis and, and the work that you're doing together on mm-hmm. the committee. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. His Excellency is talking with Mark Brumley, president of Ignatius Press. We'll be right back. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that 
they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Um, so uh, we got Mark Brumley here from uh, Ignatius Press, and I will turn it right over to you, Excellency. Yeah, Mark, you and I have been working together trying to uh, work through this in the Institute on the Catechism, both a, a, a new approach on how catechetical materials are reviewed and really accompanied rather than just reviewed as a final product. And that's kind of more of the internal working. And then we, we're talking about this culture of evangelizing catechesis. And it's interesting here in the diocese. So just about, I think it's been six Saturdays, I've met with parish leaders. And there were two sessions each with just about 500 people each and almost all catechists, believe it or not. But others came, Eucharistic ministers and lectors and all the rest. I, as I said in our little gathering, I have never seen such an enthusiastic response to what we're proposing to create, to, to take the church's culture, if you will, and, and in a sense kind of bring it to a place where everything about it is evangelizing. Everything about it is to provide opportunities to encounter the Lord, whether it's through truth or beauty or goodness or fraternity or recreation or in moments of questions and suffering. And then this idea of being accompanied by small communities of faith, small communities, not gigantic ones, right? And I kind of phrase it in the sense of that's what I grew up in. And unfortunately, the culture was so strong that the classroom suffered, just like you said. So you could have Catholics who go to Mass who didn't know the difference between the virgin birth, the assumption, or, or the ascension for that matter, right? But, but they were formed... And then when the culture collapsed and the classroom was weak, then we were in real trouble. And to your point, one of the great contributions is to strengthen the classroom. Okay, having said all that, one of the questions I want to ask you is from your vantage point, both as a man of faith, as an educator, now as the president of Ignatius Press, um, how do you assess the landscape right now in the church when it comes to evangelization and catechesis? What do you see? are the areas of, that we have to address strategically, immediately? Where are the strengths, the pockets of strength? I, I would be fascinated to hear your view of that. Oh, boy, that's a, that's a big question. Um, how would I assess the landscape? I would say that uh, we, 
you never encounter a a monolithic culture, Catholic culture, even in the preconciliar days in, in the United States, it wasn't monolithic, but um, we are so far from that. <laughs> uh, you, you talk about pluralism, you've got uh, such pluralism, uh, uh, even within practicing Catholics as far as understanding of the faith, under relationship with God and so on. And, and we don't want to make the perfect enemy the good. So we're, we're not expecting everybody to be, you know, uh, uh, exemplars and, and, and perfect and, and all of that. But there, there's, there's not even, a, in some instances, even a common standard against which people would say, how am I, how am I doing as a follower of Jesus? How am I doing as a, as a Catholic, you know? There's just a, such radically different outlooks uh, within some within the, the broad Catholic community. Um, so there's that going on. You've got, and I have to say, it, a, a huge loss of institutional pastoral credibility as a result of the clergy sexual abuse crisis, and um, there's also uh, just a huge cultural shift isn't necessarily the church is impacted by it it's not that the church is leading it or in some way uh the promulgator of it but it's just a huge cultural shift in our country in terms of political polarizations and all of these different subgroups uh we used to talk back in the you know 80s when i was a young uh, catholic school teacher about the deleterious effect of too much television mm. you know now that seems kind of quaint mm -hmm. when you look at what's going on with the social media and everything from uh, violence and sexual stuff and pornography and all of that to just the sheer domination of people's time uh, devoted to, especially kids, um, you know, their phones, and uh, and then also the, the subculture of hurt that happens as kids get bullied and, and all of that. So that's sort of the, a, a, a landscape. Um, it's very challenging. It, on the one hand, we, we, we have more tools at our disposal than we've ever had. You know, when we talk, I talk about the catechism as being one of those tools. Uh, obviously it's a major tool. We have the Bible, we've got, we're, we ourselves are exploiting one of those tools here mm -hmm. right now. Uh, when you look at podcasts, you look at, Catholic media, uh, in, you know, in publishing, we, uh, my, our, our, uh, my good friend and our marketing director at Ignatius press, we were just talking yesterday, how Catholic publishing is more competitive than it's ever been. And he said, and this is our marketing director. Okay. He said, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing that we have so many good Catholic publishers out there, you know? Um, so we've got these resources. What we lack, I think, is um, a clear commitment and a, and a gospelized skill set to use these resources to reach those people in that very diverse mm -hmm. landscape. Mm -hmm. So uh, starts with personal conversion, mm -hmm. um, and then it's formation in the faith, and then it's... Um, finding ways to get people engaged in the apostolic work of evangelization mm -hmm. catechesis. 
uh, and and even nece- not necessarily in terms of some official, semi-official, quasi-official uh, ministry in the church, but just learning how to, as Catholics, to share the faith with other people, right. to right. be present. You know, and and I'm I'm a, obviously I'm a big guy on on doctrine and being able to articulate your faith and all that. But I'm not even talking about that as valuable and important as that is just learning how to pray with people. And when you encounter people being able to pray with them. And, um, I try to make a point when I, like my wife and I go out to dinner or something like that, we're interacting with, um, you know, waiters and waitresses and, and people that using that simple thing as a moment of witness, you know, say, Hey, you know, can I pray for you? When I come to the bishops meetings, Oftentimes, you know, I talk to people there and I, you know, say, you know, they come into, you know, give you your dinner, you know, uh, what's your name, you know, uh, thanks for this wonderful dinner. Is there what, is something I can pray for you about in your life? There are just little things like that, that are points of engagement to help underscore people's awareness that God is real. There are, that, that he has people in, in the world who um, have experienced this reality and want to share that with them. That's just a little thing, but that that's part of what it means to um, engage people in this very diverse landscape that we're in. You know, you make an excellent point, excellent point about the diversity of the landscape, because even when I was young, th- there wasn't a monolith, right? That, that a parish right. was an amalgamation of different communities, and some were ethnic, some were, I'm going to say, theological um, some were ministerial in, in, in their basis. But at the end, we all had enough room to kind of do our own thing because there was the baseline of what was expected, right, from everyone. And that's missing too. So that if you're thriving, I'll get a little political here for a second, within the church. If you're thriving at, I don't know, a, a traditional Latin mass celebration, or you're thriving at in a, as a member of the neo-catechumenal way, or you're thriving as a reader and a minister, extraordinary minister of Holy Communion as part of a group that forms a, a small community of faith in a, in a, I'll say, suburban parish. Shouldn't we all be thrilled that all of that is happening in, in, in its own respective ways? But to your point, we've almost become competitive that this is good, that is bad. Yeah. And that's so un-Catholic. In my mind, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so your speciality is it true? Ignatius Press basically focuses in on high school students. No, we do. Sure. We do all kinds of stuff. Uh, we're 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 very broad. Um, we were founded originally. The original vision, Father Fessio, Joseph Fessio, is founder of Ignatius Press. He's still our editor. Is he? Uh, wow. Uh, he's 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 eighty two years yeah. old, and uh, in the office every day. You know, kind of decides for himself what he wants to do. When I'm 82, if I live that long, I'm going to decide what, I, what I'm going to do. You know, um, but uh, he was a student of uh, Joseph Ratzinger, who went on to be Pope Benedict XVI. He was studying in France. He's got a long story where you know he's trying to grow a beard. His Jesuit superior called him in. What are you doing? Uh, and he realized that his superior realized that he needed to kind of get more serious about things. So they he sent him to France to study theology under Henri de Lubac, mm-hmm. who was a huge, uh, major figure of 20th century uh, theology and major figure at the Second Vatican Council. And uh, so Father Fessio studied there 
for a number of years. And then came time to do his, and he, he got to know Delubach and von Balthasar. Uh, and it came time for Father Fessio to do his doctoral studies and looking for a place to go. Delubach sent him to Regensburg to study under Ratzinger. Mm-hmm. He did a dissertation on Balthasar under Ratzinger. Came back to the United States, and he tells the story that when he went to uh, Europe, he drank his first beer. He never had had beer, uh, as he, even as a young man in the United States. And he, went, he drank his first beer, and he really got to like <laughs> German beer. Came back to the United States and drank an American beer, and he spat it out. <laughs> and he said, if that's beer, I need another name for the thing I had in Europe. Well, he was giving talks and he was doing, and he was talking about, you know, the theologians he'd studied under and someone asked him, well, what do you think about American theologians? And he said, well, you know, he mentioned at that time, this was in the 70s, so I guess it would have been Avery Dulles or something like that. He said, you know, they're, they're fine. He said, but if I'm going to use the word theologian to them, and he told the beer story, I'm going to need another word for what I experienced in Europe. And so that kind of uh, was impetus for him. And he had some other friends who, who he had a little reading group and he would translate uh, these European theologians to the group because uh, they weren't available in English. And so one of the people involved with this, in fact, he's still on our board, John Galton, who co-founded the St. Ignatius Institute, with Father Fessy at the University of San Francisco, um, said, why don't we have, why aren't these in, available in English? And so that was the launch of Ignatius Press. So we were launched primarily to make available to American readers, primarily American readers, but other English language readers, the works of what have come to be called the communio theologians, people like Ratzinger and de Lubac and Bouillet and uh, Hansers von Balthasar and Daniel Lu and those folks, the people that were really the theological renewal at the heart of the mm-hmm. Second Vatican Council. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why we were founded. Now we branched out and we do these other things now. You know, we, do, we, we, did, we did textbooks for kids in school. But uh, our core remains uh, those communio theologians and then, you know, popular theology and spirituality and Bible resources for ordinary Catholics. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit of who we are. What you we, know, do. I must... we do movies too, by the way. Yeah, you know, I, I did not know the history of Ignatius Press. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah, it gives a very different perspective, right? Um, so so from your vantage point, let's, let's narrow in on all your work with young people. So the texts that we have used, that, that, ha- that are used with young people, primary and secondary, have evolved certainly with the giving of the with the coming of the catechism and stuff. So when we talk about making them a tool for evangelization, what does that mean? Like, how could you do that? Like, yeah. does, what does that mean? <laughs> do you have any ideas? I can tell you what it means. <laughs> I can articulate what it means. It's harder to do yeah. than to say what it exactly. means. Exactly. <laughs> right. But obviously, we want we want young people to come to a point point of personal appropriation of the commitment of faith and life that their parents have with respect to being disciples of Jesus Christ and living that discipleship out as part of his church. So 
that's that's what we want. And we recognize that it's not a kind of one-time come to Jesus, notwithstanding my evangelical background uh, moment. Uh, but the, the, but there there is a maturation or a point of conversion that happens should happen in young people where what they've been given by their parents becomes wholly their own, and it's not simply a set of beliefs and practices, but it's a relationship that is expressed through those beliefs and practices. It's a relationship with God in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit as part of the community of the church. So that's a, that's, that's a description of what you want to happen. And as I say, you know, when I get, when I do, I, I do, t I do formation for catechists in the diocese of Santa Rosa here, which is the diocese I live in. And what I always say is, you know, back in the seventies, there was a great deal of emphasis on the affective dimension of education and life, which is the emotional and the ethical and the value commitment dimension. And that, um, that they were onto something where they erred is in a kind of hyper overreaction to the didactic, the doctrinal, and all of that from previous age. And what we've been doing since, I would say, really since Catechesi Tridendi of John Paul II, but in a, in a, in a very more pointed way since the Catech, so we'll say about since around 1992, 1995, practically speaking, uh, 1997 in the, in the Catholic Church in the United States, is we've been trying to strike that balance between the uh, cognitive and the doctrinal uh, and the affective. I would I would add also that there is a dimension of spiritual skill that has to be acquired, uh, that has to do with how we pray and how we participate in the liturgy, that there's a doing dimension, not just an understanding dimension, not just a moral ethical choice dimension of discipleship, but um, a dimension that has to do with how we worship and what, you know, what does or doesn't go on at mass, what, how we see ourselves connecting with the liturgy and so on. So um, these are the facets I think are, are crucial to actually helping kids uh, become the disciples that they are spiritually conformed by baptism and confirmation to be through that um, cognizing the, the gospel call and through the volition of, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I see Jesus as, as the one who gives meaning and purpose to my life, and I want to follow him, and I encounter him in the, in the sacraments of the church, mm -hmm. especially in the Mass, um, and helping them facilitate that experience. It, you know, in one sense, this is the old problem. You, you can't, you know, Socrates had this, you know, the problem of teaching virtue. You can't teach virtue. Virtue is something that's more caught than taught, but you can create the, the environment. And for that matter, you can't actually teach anything. You know, teaching is, as I, as I was an education major and a history major as an undergraduate on study, get graduate degree in theology, but, um, as my uh, teachers taught me, uh, you facilitate learning. You're, you're the agent of facilitation. And the truth is what uh, actuates the actual learning of the mind. And the truth motivated, uh, the mind motivated is seeing that the truth is desirable and is good and something I want. 
that gives meaning to my life and connects what I'm what I know what I don't know. That's what motivates right. learning just in the broad right. sense, and and certainly with respect to catechesis, encountering Jesus um, and seeing him as the purpose for my life, the one that's giving meaning to my life, um, is what motivates growth in, in understanding of the faith. So it, but it's a it's a trick. So, so no, sorry, no, no, Mark, is, is, is this one thing that you just helped me to to click in my mind, which I'm going to be, and I'm very grateful, which I'll explain in a second, but. So it's all about, it's facilitating the opportunity, right? In a sense, is, is what a good teacher does, right? No different than yeah. the way I describe what we're going to attempt to do is you facilitate the opportunities for encounter, but you can't force an encounter with Christ. It's the, it's the work of the Holy Spirit exactly and the receptivity right. of the person, right? That's exactly right. right. Now, it's, it's, you know, yeah. so yesterday I had a conversation with a very accomplished pianist. Um, uh, who is actually playing in one of our parishes here, who has played throughout the world. She has played often with Andrea Bocelli and just extraordinarily accomplished. And I'll just leave her nameless for now. But but I met to talk about this whole question of the one, I call it the one, and this vision. And she spoke, and she's not Catholic. She spoke so eloquently about the power of beauty and what's clicked is perhaps in the 70s and 80s, they were listening and emotion. But actually, when you think mm -hmm. of beauty, it's it's more than that. It's also an encounter. It's another way to encounter the truth, right? That engages right. and invites. So it's not just, oh, I think this is great. Because yep. that's entertainment. Could be entertainment. But that's, that's right. not what we're talking about. And in, in yeah. a sense, so... Where we've matured the hard way all these years is that every single attempt in the past had a kernel of truth to it. Some grew more than others. Now we're going to try to put them all together in their proper place and facilitate That's all right. these opportunities to see what happens, right? In the end, your point about virtue is extraordinarily well taken. I mean, we could create a curriculum and overlay, you know, to, to, to introduce our high school students what's temperance, what's fortitude, all that stuff, perseverance. And I guess intellectually, you can understand it. But if the, a person in front of them is actually mirror, living them, mirror them back, that mm. creates the opportunity, right? To say, well, I, yeah, I'd like to be like him or her, right? Yeah. Well, I, you know, we, we all have had teachers that are enthusiastic for their subject, and we've caught a certain enthusiasm from that. What are they doing? They're, point, they're not... They're pointing to the thing as good. We see in them the excitement that, that this is good. And, and well, that's what we need to do okay. when we catechize. We, we need to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. People see Jesus Christ through us, and that points to them exactly. to him. Yeah. And they say, I want Now, we that. don't have much time left, so let's that. get controversial for the last two minutes. Okay. If okay. you were to ask, uh, uh, when I had the catechist last Saturday, at least six of them who got up to ask questions said the same thing over and over again. Bishop? This is exciting, but how do we get the parents involved? Because many of our parents yeah. are disengaged. Now, your point as the president of a publishing, big publishing company, that is in part serving catechetical needs of young people and adults and all the rest. How, what's your response? Like how, what ideas do you have to in, entice, engage, invite, parents into this yeah. process 
it's it's a challenge and, and they're different groups so we'd have to say different things with different groups but in the short time that we have um, the experience of COVID has been powerful because a lot of parents got more involved with their kids religious education as a result of that because things were done online and were in the home and we have been involved with video pre presentations of different aspects of the faith I know our partners at the Augustine Institute have the signs of grace program that they did for Sacramento prep we're doing that with our um Word of Life program, what we found is that parents are interested in their kids' religious education in a way that's akin to, or they can be, in a way that's akin to their kid, their interest in their kids being involved with sports or academic success and so on. And and I don't have the you know five steps to make this happen in all cases scenario here, but if if parishes can tap into that by uh, having a video that is engaging, say a video, say I said we're going to have all the parents watch this video either come together or watch it online or whatever. We're going to have all the parents watch this video. It's got to be short. It's got to be powerful and attractive. And then it has to be facilitated so that um, what they see in that video, which is really evangel evangelization, game, ostensibly aimed at the kids, but also aimed at the parents, those parish facilitators actually help the parents undergo a conversion. Uh, and but this is a whole we don't in, in the brief time we have uh, i can't map all this out not that i have it all mapped out but some of it i have mapped out from my own experience mm -hmm. and from the experience of, of of actually some some evangelical churches are very good at this uh they don't have the whole of the gospel from our perspective but they they've learned with the gospel elements that they have to to make them effective in evangelizing so there's some things i could say or we could say and explore uh, in that regard with how parents are themselves catechized in the interest of their kids. Um, I could tell you about some experiences I had many years ago with Catholic Answers, dealing with parents coming to us trying to get answers on how to get my kid back in the church. Parents who themselves are not well evangelized. Parents who themselves may not actually have been Sunday mass goers, but they it was a violation of the family that their kids were being taken out to these fundamentalist churches. And so they wanted an answer. And then giving them answers about that, we found that we were evangelizing mm -hmm. those parents. And they, in turn, underwent conversion and started going to Mass mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. So, again, we don't have a lot of time to talk about it here, but um, there are some things we can say. You know, anytime the gospel is, is uh, well presented, you're going to have a certain number of people who are going to respond to that. And even if, even if they're ostensibly already Catholics, right. even if they're ostensibly already going to Mass right. on Sunday— they're going to undergo um, a conversion. And so we have to start have catechetics. Catechesis for kids has to also be catechesis for parents. And we have to start thinking well about how we reach people with messages in general and draw from that in order to reach people with the most important message, the one who was the message, the logos, the word Amen. made flesh. Uh, and there's a lot we Amen. can say and Amen. develop in that. Amen. Absolutely. Or as I said, I, I made this bold statement, which, which I hope you appreciate, at the last gathering of the catechists, and I said to them, the, the task of the directory on catechesis now is that our formational efforts need to be focused on adults. Yeah. Adults. And they all looked at me. Right. It's adult, because then if adults are well-formed and growing in their faith, to pass it on the faith, is a much easier enterprise, right? So it's yeah. a very different approach yeah. than what we've been doing for a very long time. Mark, tremendous. Your insights are tremendous. Well, I feel the same way about you, Bishop. <laughs> <laughs>
I, I always love going to the meetings. You always have great things to say for for the for these catechetical publishers, and you're really helping well, us. Thank you. Stay thank on. You. And what do you think of Steve? He's a good guy too, don't you think? <laughs> Steve's a great guy. I just met Steve. Steve, keep up the good work. I'm going to keep the picture in line. That's, you know? that's right. That's not as easy uh, to do as it is to say. But um, but yeah. let's let's take one more break and we'll come back on the other side of the break with a listener question. Uh, you've been listening to Mark Brumley, president oh. of Ignatius oh. Press, talking with uh, His Excellency Bishop Frank Caggiano. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt from Restless on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Each week on Restless, we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed up world. Join us each Friday at noon on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, the Veritas app, or wherever you get your shows. Hope to see you there. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. All right, Excellency, here is this week's listener question. It says, Bishop Frank, do we need to confess venial sins? Well, it's an interesting question because of the choice of the word need, right? So need implies obligation. And I'm going to, I'm going to change this, the, um, the question to say, is there a reason we should not confess venial sins if we're seeking holiness of life? Certainly serious sin, mortal sin, we're obliged to confess. But if we're truly looking for a tr- a holiness, then yes, the answer is, I don't need to, but I should, and I would want to, right? Because it's the venial sins that trip us up many times, right? So the answer is, I would say, yeah, yes. Yeah, if you're pursuing holiness, yes. Great, which we all should be, so great. Okay, so if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And we would like to thank Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport. And you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Mark Brumley, thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you give us the website so listeners can go there too. And they can go to ignatius.com, I-G-N-A-T-I-U-S.com. And you get our books there, but you can also get them at your local Catholic bookstores. Support those local Catholic bookstores. They are apostolic works. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. That's very well said. Mark, really a tremendous conversation. And now you have intrigued me about families and parents. So you said there's more to talk about. So you may come back, but in the meantime, I may call you privately to pick your brain because uh, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's part of the, of the, of the cutting edge to, of the challenge, but it's a challenge that we'll meet. I have no doubt about that. But anyway, thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your work at Ignatius and being here. Right. Tremendous. Thank you, Bishop. And thank you. And Excellency, before we go, would you please give us your blessing? Yes, of course. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, Heavenly Father, for all of the blessings you give us each day, many of them in such small ways, but especially for the blessing that we had this day to share faith together on this recording. So we ask that you continue to bless our listeners, bless Mark in his ministry, bless Steve in his ministry, and keep us faithful. 
Together we honor you as we say glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you next week, Amen. Steve. Okay, excellent. Mark, Thanks, all the Mark. best to you. Have a happy Easter. You too.